You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, guys. Um, this is one of those nights I am recording our intro on a Wednesday night, and it's always interesting in our house. Bedtime has been quite a mess at our house here lately. I, we just can't seem to get our kids in a routine where they're sleeping and going down easy. It seems like it's getting later and later. Fun times. So, because of that, I'm going to keep this intro on the shorter side and let you guys get to it because this is a little bit of a longer episode and it's a detail-oriented episode. This week we're talking with Al Tomechko from Vitalize Seed Company. And Al is somebody who is self-taught in a lot of things when it comes to soils, plants, plant-animal interactions, food plots, farming, uh, and he's a wealth of knowledge. He, he truly is. He's, he's surrounded himself and done his research at the right places and surround himself with good people, and he is full of information. He's somebody that you would definitely want on your side when it comes to learning about food plots and making uh, quality quality decisions um, for, for your own food plots, whether that's seed or uh, just assessing a soil test. And we're going to be talking about nutrient cycling, plant health, uh, plant-animal interactions, doing it in cost-effective ways with low inputs of synthetic fertilizer use. Uh, and just a general soil health discussion. And I'm going to give you guys a warning up front. If you are newer to food plots or you're, you don't nerd out about this stuff quite like Al and I do, this episode might not be for you because it's, it is pretty detail-oriented. We go down some rabbit holes in the world of nutrient cycling, cycling uh, what it means with carbon and nitrogen ratios and how that works with the soil and how we, how we make seed blends that meet this and no-till and like I said it's a it's a detail-oriented kind of an upper level conversation maybe two three hundred level type conversation I would say in the world of food plots uh, it's a great one Al's full of knowledge and it, I loved recording this this was a great conversation uh, I, I plan to have Al on for more talks because he's just he's a fun guy and he's got a lot of knowledge so I think you guys are going to really value this as we approach food plot planting season maybe you're thinking about how to make uh, 
one step better in your food plot planning program. And uh, this could be an episode that helps you get to that. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And I have another fantastic guest with me this week, uh, somebody I've been back and forth with and texting a little bit here and there and been looking forward to having on this time of year to talk about the, the wonderful topic I love, and that's food plots. Um, but we, we have a lot more to discuss because we were yakking each other's ear off for quite a bit before we got started with this one tonight. But I've got uh, Al Tomechko from Vitalize Seed. Al, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to chat with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, buddy. It's always a joy. This is the time of year where I'm thinking a million things when it comes to what I would like to do leading it. Like, I always do this, like, the season closes for hunting season, and I right away go into next season. I'm thinking, I'm going to do this, I got, and I start writing lists down, and I'll be going through maps, and, okay, this is what I noticed when I was walking this portion of the property, and I'm going to try to convert this to this. And here it is. We're almost into March, and I can tell you that list that I've done and created has almost – Nil, nada, nothing has been done to it, just with the, the busyness that we got going on. But what's been going on in your world? Yeah, it's the same, buddy. I've had like three or four times scheduled to, to get out and either do some shed hunting or just, you know, field scouting or, you know, whatever, right? Looking at browse pressure, browse lines. I like to try to get out at February, March time, look at not only food plot browse, but also native browse assessments i want to run a chainsaw <laughs> i want to do all these different things and i think i've i've struck out on uh, all three attempts in the last few weeks that I've, i mean, just stuff has come up you know what have you so um it's it's a busy time of year it feels like after the holidays you know it's like man it'd be great to get out and shed hunts or do this or do that but then at the same time you know the phone doesn't stop ringing uh for for the full-time job for the comp- seed company job for or your buddies checking in, whatever it might be. Um, there just seems to be a lot going on. So hopefully here, uh, starting this uh, this weekend, be getting into some uh, some TSI projects for, uh, I, I have the, the farm and um, equip, you know, contracts for uh, NRCS and, and TSI is a big portion of that after the invasive removal mm-hmm. was done. So that's kind of the next step uh, in our project. Good deal. I. I'm going through this phase and I've talked about it a lot on the show where, you know, I know busyness of work, busyness of family. I'm trying to adjust my priorities and, and I'm, I am really trying to curb that. But I also, I don't want to make excuses for just not doing stuff. And I, I don't want to get into like a, like a, a groove of just being lazy and pushing stuff to the side either. Like I, I, I realize as I'm going through some of these changes in life, like my mental toughness is not what I thought it was and trying to curb my mental strength into being a busy individual, getting all my work done and a resp- being a responsible adult and still uh, driving forward to be a better bow hunter, be a better deer hunter, be a better uh, property manager and food plotter and agronomist and all those things. And like, it, that's been a struggle in and of itself too. And I know we were talking before we got started. You're a you're a relatively new dad, man. Tell us a little bit about that before we get rolling onto our rabbit hole discussion of whitetails. Well, you know, one of the benefits um, of you know my buddy Jared's podcast and, and ha- we have Habitat Chat, which is just a a group on the on Facebook, and then of course the seed company is getting to know people from not just you know Ohio where I'm from, but from all over the country. Right. I mean, look at you and I talking today. Right? I mean, that just is, is some you know, a byproduct of, of today's social media, which right. 
say a lot of negative things about social media, but some of the cool things that have happened is the fact that like you can meet people from all over and you learn like, well, how are you managing, you know, that I, I know guys who have 500 acres in Iowa and, you know, they're, they're very successful from a financial perspective, but you know, they're, they're two or three hours from their property or they own a business and it's super busy, right. Or whatever. And it's like, well, how do you do it? And, um, I know guys who have, uh, well, like my buddy Jared, I mean, he has two twin girls and a little boy, you know, all under, I think it's three kids. I think the girls just might maybe turn seven or eight. So, I mean, busy as heck, you know? So my point is, is I've got to pick a lot of people's brains and what it really comes down to, um, is how bad do you, you kind of want that, right? And, and how bad do you really want to get that work done? And it might suck. Like, you know, if you're, if you're an hour or two hours from your property, um, and you got a Sunday or a Saturday, or you take you got a Tuesday off work, depending on your work schedule, <clears throat> it's really easy. Oh man, I haven't had a day out. I'm just going to take today to sit on the couch. You know, the kid's not around, and and just hang out. Um, you know, but for me, what I've done is, you know, if I got a chance, whether it's a property 15 minutes away or two hours away, um, if I got a day off, I really try to make the most of it. And if that means getting up at five and get out the door by a quarter to six, and um, you know, driving a couple hours and working all day and coming home or whatever it might be. Um, I try to make the most of that. So that's one. And then of course the next is just planning, um, you know, trying to plan ahead, trying to look at the calendars. Um, that really makes a big difference. Uh, and as we get closer to planting season, um, as you know, as an agronomist, I mean, planning is super critical. Mm. Um, you don't want to get out to, to your property and go, okay, it's plant. Oh, I forgot my seed or I forgot it my spreader, right? You know, you have to really have that checklist, be it mental or, or literally a physical checklist of saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm planning, I'm ready to go. And that's something, you know, for me, like I mentioned, I'm going to be doing some TSI this weekend. I have my saw, oil, chaps, helmet. Um, I have a little tote that I keep like extra chainsaw chains and tools in. It's all in the truck packed. I packed it, uh, uh, this afternoon, actually, because I wanted to make sure that like, there's nothing I'm forgetting. You know, if I wait till I'm walking out the door, I'm going to forget something. Right. So those little types of things can just make your day and time so much more efficient when you do get that time away from, from your, your little ones or, or whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing you mentioned there too, is, you know, picking your brain and, and modeling off of other people, you know, people, People drive um, motivation sometimes or, or, or help get you. Like, I love surrounding myself with people who are, are driven and motivated because it motivates me. Um, but, you know, going down, you know, you're talking about getting ready to do some TSI work and planning season stuff around the corner. Um, why don't you do a, a better job of introducing yourself than I did from the standpoint of, of how did you get started with Vitalize Seed and, and what what's your segue into uh, property management, private land manipulation, and, and food plots? Well, yeah, uh, I'll try to be somewhat brief. Um, you know, I started hunting at a very young age. Um, <clears throat> my uh, my grandpap actually was from, uh, and, and dad actually was born in Cambria County, Pennsylvania. So uh, kind of west, southwest central Pennsylvania, yep. I guess you could say. Um, grandpap was a coal miner and a World War II veteran and lived a good long life. Uh, he had passed away at the age of 97, but uh, he, he was a huge influence on my life. Actually, I'm named after him. His name was also Albert. And uh, he was a big deer hunter, as as most people are um, in that area uh, of Pennsylvania specifically. It's, it's a really 
deep heritage of, uh, of deer hunting there, as, as is most of the state. So uh, that was a big influence on me. We grew up, uh, you know, we, we take go rabbit hunting all the time. So I was, was hunting and we hunted a lot of public land. Um, we had some small private lands we could hunt, but a lot of them had a lot of permission already mm-hmm. granted. So never really had my own piece of property to hunt. Um, you know, but, but that enough, I mean, I, I, I bow hunted through high school and all that. And, um, just small little permission spots, you know, here and there, I go to state land or whatnot. And, um, we end up as a family buying, uh, a cabin in, in some property, had a barn on there, um, gosh, like 15 years ago now. Um, and we just fell in love with, with owning the property. So, um, you know, dad, my, my dad does not hunt, um, but I have some uncles who do and, and cousins and such. And, um, you know, we kind of always, I, I would say I kind of led the charge, right? Like guys like to hunt, but I liked like the habitat. Like I was, before we even closed on the property, I was trying to understand more and more and more. Um, I guess at that time I would have been, I don't know, I was like 19, 18 or 19 years okay. old maybe. Um, so we kind of started looking at this property and learning more and, um learning about timber contracts and all that stuff and um did have some areas we could do little food plots i mean it's in eastern ohio so it's really heavily timber like uh, people think of ohio a lot of times and it kind of gets this false uh, idea of just like oh ohio that you know must be all agricultural ground it's like well yeah certain pockets are heavy agriculture beautiful soils um southeastern ohio in, in the foothills of appalachia is not necessarily known for for either of those yeah um, it's beautiful i mean it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful and um you know my, like i said my grandpa was a was a, a coal miner and you know appalachia's always held a, a really special place in my heart you know i remember going back into the coal mining town and stuff when i was a little kid seeing my great grandmother and, and stuff so it's always held a really special place in my heart um but from a soil fertility perspective and things it can be pretty rough rough growing conditions, you know, and, and the terrain can be pretty rugged and such. Um, so yeah, I mean, we had, had some food plots, uh, or areas that we could, you know, put in food plots and we started just doing it the traditional way, you know, um, tilling, I was on the QDMA forms trying to just absorb, you know, and just, um, there were so many things, Mitch, that were, contradictory of each of each other you know yeah, people yeah. having different mindsets and doing this and doing that way and going back and forth like I, picking part information from people on a forum is is mind-boggling it and yeah and i felt like back then it was um because of my limited experiences right like there was just so many experts and i mean we have that today with facebook and and stuff you know so i mean it's not that and and the thing is is nobody does does these things with you know a malicious intent i don't think right like nobody's intentionally but there's an ego driven behind it too in a lot of cases there is and and you know i tried to look past a lot of that and and just i wanted to learn you know when there was guys saying um you know, you got to do this and you have to sweeten your soil and, and you have to use fertilizers for this and you have to do that you know and i I'm like, okay, um, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm spending this money, you know, we're growing great, great field, <laughs> you know, but it's like, gosh, to till, I mean, we had got up to the point we were tilling, I don't know, maybe 
five acres, something like that. Yeah, with, you know, but with minimal equipment. Up. Yeah, I mean, it's all and it's all broken up. You yeah. know, it's not like you're tilling a five acre totally flat field where you're like, oh, this is okay. You're tilling, you know, in a two acres here that's kind of on a contour, you know, downward 45 degree slope, and you're having to, you know, keep the bucket on the tractor, you know, all these things, right? Like, and you're like, man, that took a long time. And then you have to drive back up and around and off to the road and over to the other field. And it's like, by the time you do all that, it took an exorbitant amount of time, Oh, tons. Um, you know, and then you don't get the rain or, or whatever. So it's like, man, that's kind of stunk. But overall we had pretty good food plots. Um, what really shifted my, I, I would say we did that for probably about five years, you know, and over the last like six years or so, um, there was a few years in between where I said, all right, I'm just going to start doing like clover monocultures, you know, cause I can't, I just don't have the time to maintain. Well, then it was like, you get on the forums. It's like, well, you need to spray 2,4-D. You need to spray clethylene. You need to mow three times a year. Don't mow it. You don't do mow it. Like it was so much different information on that. So, and then in all honesty, because of the area in, in Ohio that you know we're in, um, you don't have a lot of, you know, row crop agriculture, but what you do have is a lot of cattle pastures. So I didn't, see a tremendous amount of draw to a monoculture clover field. And, and even though it's big timber country, like in all honesty, like the areas that are open, if it's open and sunlight gets to it, you probably have clover, like of some sort, okay. you know? So we just didn't see this tremendous amount of draw to these monoculture clover fields. And that was a little disheartening, right? You're like, man, I got this beautiful green field, could be on the cover of a magazine and, and where, you know, where are the deer? Um, so I wanted to add more, you know, and I heard guys talk about winter rye and I heard guys talk about radish. And um, I guess all of that long story to tell you that uh, I started adding rye and radish and turnips to my clover, the my monoculture clover fields. And, you know, guys told me, oh, you can't do that. It has to have perfect seed to soil contact. It's not going to work, you know. And um, sure enough, it, it did, you know, and you have to kind of throttle your expectations right but i remember being like i'm just going to try this and mow the clover off you know and see what happens maybe the bush hog scrapes the, the dirt a little bit um and, and exposes some seeds and we get some good germination the first year was really interesting because i remember going back in the spring and well in the, that fall you know obviously hunting over there, i'm like oh man that ride didn't take and that kind of stinks or whatnot and then going back in the spring and being like oh my gosh there wasn't a weed in the clover field and this winter rye had shot up, mm. you know, it was just beautiful. And I'm like, so I start learning about allopathy, right? Like allopathic traits of rye grain. Well, what's it doing? Well, you know, root exudates and the body of the rye that decomposes is, is suppressing, you know, some of these weed seeds from, from germinating. Yep. So all of that being said, we were fortunate to, to add more land. Um, and I really kind of started getting into, I was reading a lot more um, what, about regenerative agriculture, about uh, really started in a lot of the regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. soil owner's manual, um, you know, the classics like the Gabe Brown, the soil owner's manual, listen to Ray Archuleta on YouTube. I kind of started there because I'll never forget, I we added quite a bit more land than, than we had owned previously. And... Uh, there were some bigger areas for fields and I knew that the deer are, were already in these fields quite often. And I'm like, if we can plant this, it's going to be fantastic. Mm. But I'm like, all right, now I'm doing, 
you know, 10 acres, eight, eight acres, 10 acres, whatever, twice a year. So you're doing 16 to 20 acres of food plots a year. I'm like, this, this is, this is a lot, you know, this is a lot, a lot of property to, to do. And I pulled soil samples and I looked at the cost. It was going to cost me just to do a spring planting according to these, these soil tests. And I said, okay, there's gotta be another way, <laughs> another way for deer food plots to get more out of it, out of this soil. Right. Yeah. So and, let me sh- make sure, be- I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I- I'm just make no. sure I'm capital because a lot of people would hear what you said earlier and talking about, um, a food plot. Like I was growing good food plots, but I wanted to make a change and make an adjustment. A lot of people, if they've, if they're, if they hear that they're growing a food plot, the way they're doing it, they don't see the reason to change. Now, I- am I understanding you correctly that your, your motivation behind going down the pathway of no-till regenerative ag and, and, and that's, uh, let's just call it the the soil health route that was was your motivation solely driven upon trying to find a simpler way to cover that many acres or did you have other motivation behind that method of uh application for for planting and and things like that so really good question um one it was covering more acreage Two, although the food plots looked great, I didn't feel like the attractiveness is where it should have been. Um, and I didn't understand why. Like even soybeans, right? Just singular monoculture soybeans. I'm like, I don't, I mean, deer were in them, right? But I'm like, I have a high deer density. You know, why are they not hitting these even harder? So I'm like, something just seems like it's missing. And then lastly, I have always been kind of obsessed. And I think a lot of that was probably driven or influenced by um, QDMA. But by this idea of like organic matter, right? Organic mm. matter was thrown around. That was a buzzword for sure. Oh, you know, back ten years ago, it still is. Don't feel bad. So okay, so like I felt like I was so influenced by this this idea of organic matter, and more so this this contradictory information that would come out is you got to till it in to get organic. You got to incorporate it, right? That was a, I don't think anybody really says that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, although maybe you hear it, but like that was a common one. Oh, in order to get your organic matter up, you have to chill it in. And other people said never chill and, and stuff. Well, then I started asking the questions. I, I put things in clover um, monocultures, right? Because mm-hmm. people said, don't kill, don't kill. So I put in clover monoculture, and three years later, um, you know, four years later, I pulled my, my organic matter, and it was either it had decreased or it, um, it stayed the same. Yep. But I think most of them had decreased. Yep. And I'm like, wait a second. And then I started asking, I remember specifically, I won't say any names, but I had asked some, some different people within uh, QDMA, and, and so, which is a great organization. You know? Oh, absolutely. I remember them just kind of scratching their head like, I'm like, well, if all we have to do is not till, why don't, if I walk out of my yard right here and pull a soil sample, why is the organic matter, you know, 300% that all we've done is mowed the grass? You know, why isn't it just going through the roof, Right. So like something's something's missing here. So there was a level of interest. There was a financial piece, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. I need to do more acreage because I have a high deer density. I need to do more acreage and I want to expedite this. And then, you know, I continued to kind of start to get more and more interested in, um, you know, that regenerative agriculture piece because I felt like that was the method that I could do, get the most bang for my buck, right? You know, maximizing uh, nutrient cycling, nutrient density, but also attractiveness through multiple times a year. The last thing I'll mention on that particular piece is 
that was another big thing that was popular back 10 years ago. And I'm sure you remember this is guys would say, well, I do a brassica plot or I do a clover plot. And they go, well, the brassicas are good from this state to this state and the clovers are good from this state to this state. But like you never covered all of the season and you then be like, well, what, where you, how do you know what exactly when to hunt where? Like what if it's a warm day? What if it's this day? You know, and it, it always seemed um, just difficult to keep track of a lot of that stuff, right? Like where am I going to hunt? I have deer pulling this way this time of year, then back this way this time of the year. Um, and it just seemed like too many choices, you know, uh, in, in my opinion, to, to then try to also, instead of if you do want to you go the fertilizer route, now you're fertilizing for a crop that's going to be there for a short period, short window versus overall, like the overall idea and, idea and function and focus on soil health mm-hmm. throughout multiple growth, growing seasons because it's a mixture of crops, right? So all of that just kind of appealed to me and made sense like, yeah, let's look at this. I started using the term, which I'm sure other people have as well, but I started saying, stop calling them food plots. Let's call them wildlife pastures because it's like, you know, I want this diversity of like a pasture, you know, it doesn't have to be row crop agriculture. You know, that's beautiful, right? It's, it's perfect. It's precise. Um, but it's okay if this looks like a mixed mosh pasture, that's fine. Let's add that diversity and cycle nutrients. So that's kind of how I got to that level. Hopefully I answered your question. You absolutely answered my question. And I'm going to say this plants that we any plant, whether it's a food plot or a native plant, a plant is a nutrient exchange portion. Of, it exchanges nutrients to the animal, and that is basically what what you're doing. You're you're trying to make an attraction. The more attractive plants are going to have better nutrient quality, and there, there's a couple different ways to go around that. But I, I like your approach in in what you're saying with cycling different plants through. So let's kind of go down that rabbit hole of okay what exactly is al getting at with these these plants talking about mixing plants and cycling nutrients first of all how does that work and why would i care and uh i kind of let you take it off on that that generic statement yeah i mean again it's a great question so i guess you should care because i mean i haven't used an ounce of fertilizer i've used lime which is a whole discussion there if we want to talk about uh, Neil Kinzer, Dr. William Albrecht's method is to, should you consider lime a fertilizer or not, but we won't go down that rabbit hole today, but um, I have used lime, but other than lime, and that hasn't been used very much, Mm -hmm. um, I have not used an ounce of fertilizer in six years. Okay. And I've done that simply through nutrient cycling. So, you know, what that means is like, well, the first off, the best way I can explain to start off to understand nutrient cycling, you have to understand carbon to nitrogen ratios. And the easiest way I can explain carbon to nitrogen ratios is one, every plant species has so many parts carbon and so many parts nitrogen, right? And every microbe is made up of parts of carbon and parts of nitrogen. And every microbe in order to survive needs so many of both in order to sustain their, their biological <clears throat> vigor, if you will. So when you take a monoculture of clover, this is the best visual I've ever come up with. So if you have a better one, please share. But if you take a monoculture of clover field and you spray it with Roundup and you come back two, three weeks later and you looked at that field 
you would expect to see almost bare dirt. There, there would be very little there. Anybody who's ever killed off a Cloverfield knows it shrivels up and there's, there's just not anything there. And you ask, well, why? Well, it didn't blow away, right? It's because clover is inherently low carbon to nitrogen product. So it's going to break down faster. Those microbes are going to consume it. Now, in the bad thing about a carbon, uh, monoculture clover field is now that it's all consumed, those microbes are going to be looking, they're going to, first off, they're going to propagate. Second off, they're going to be going, we need more carbon. We got all this nitrogen, there's a bunch of nitrogen, so where's the carbon, which is why you can actually see a decrease in organic matter, because now they're going to turn to, to your organic matter, and you literally can mine it out of your soil. So it's right, like, it is important to understand carbon and nitrogen ratios. Now, to explain this a little bit further, let's use that same example, but let's picture rye grain. If you got this monoculture of rye grain, and you spray that sucker down with Roundup, and you come back two weeks later, your mind is probably picturing a pretty thick thatch of rye grain still sitting there. It didn't go anywhere. And you're like, well, well, why is that? Oh, it's just heavier, it didn't blow away? Well, no, it's because it's such high carbon and nitrogen that it simply can't get cycled by the, the nutrients. They need N in order to cycle that high C or high carbon. So first and foremost, in, 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 in order to understand how can we have plants extracting and then cycling nutrients from one mix to the next mix, we really have to kind of have that preliminary concept in our minds, right? So like what we do at Vitalize Seed, we have a spring mix that's it's more heavy in legumes. I always tell people we are trying to keep, I use nitrogen because I think it's the most frequently talked about. Sure. Um, but this, we can talk about other leachable nutrients, but for sake of time and understanding that, just stick with nitrogen. Like nitrogen, goes through a cycle, hits nitrate. When it hits nitrate, it's either, you know, assimilated or it's leachable, you know, in general, right? Mm -hmm. In every soil type CEC level, we're going to have variability there, but let's just assume that that's true. So we want to keep nitrogen in the cycle. So what does that mean? Well, in our spring mix, we have legumes in there, you know, beans and peas and sun hemp, an American joint veg and, um, gosh, cow peas, etc. Mm -hmm. a bunch of other stuff. Then there's also... Well, why don't you just plant plant all that? Well, because those plants don't need a ton of nitrogen. Right. So you also have your barleys and your sunflowers and sorghums because we're trying to capture from our fall crop, right? So our fall crop has been terminated. Our spring crop, we call it nitro boost, has been planted into that fall crop. Now that fall crop is going to start breaking down and releasing nutrients because of the end fixation that's happening. A deer comes over, they bite this off, there's N on the roots, that piece of the roots maybe dies, now N's released into the soil profile. There's all these things that are happening. Microbes are living, dying, et cetera. Well, instead of letting that nitrogen, that the fall crop work through the clovers, through the breakdown of rye grain, et cetera, to totally leach out of the soil profile and, and lose it, that's why you have this mix of lower carbon nitrogen and higher carbon nitrogen or N-loving plants or N-scavenging plants be it sunflower, sorghum, et cetera. So we're literally keeping N in the cycle. At the same time, we're giving the microbes a system that's going to help break down that previous crop's higher carbon nitrogen ratio being pumping N into mm -hmm. the system through the use of legumes, right? 
So that's really, really critical. Now, like our system, we use, we call it carbon load in the fall, nitro boost in the spring. So you're really, the first year or two, you're just kind of getting the system primed, right? Your, your, your nitro boost is pumping a lot of N, carbon load needs a good bit of N, but it has some legumes in there too, like peas and clovers and such. Um, you know, you, you terminate the nitro boost, you plant the carbon load, the nitro boost is going to break down relatively quickly, but you're not going to lose a lot of those nutrients because you're going to have the brassicas and the grains and all this heavier carbon nutrient scavenging material sucking that nitrogen up before it leaches out of your profile. So what happens is you heavily reduce, and again, it really depends on your soil type. Like I hate sure. when it's like, oh, just do this. It's a magic pill. Like I have CECs. Um, you know, ranging from 8.8 .8 to, to over 16. Okay. So pretty nice soil. Like, you know, overall, like it's not overly heavy. It's not overly light. You know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, if this CEC was a two, you know, we might be like, oh, it's going to take some time before we're totally weaned off, you know, any type of fertilizer mm -hmm. or what have you. So I, I like to really be transparent in this, but as we cycle these nutrients and do these things, the system gets more and more efficient, right? Um, here's where the caveats are, Mitch. One, like I said, soil type, size of the food, food fields. Mm -hmm. And the reason size comes in is browse brush. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people overlook. Um, you simply can't, I don't care how diverse your mixes are. I don't, I don't care how much above ground biomass you're creating low ground biomass you're creating if everything's walking off the field year after year after year after year you're you're just losing a lot of biomass you know and you're oh you're, absolutely and let, let's let's dive into that a little bit but i want to make sure i'm recapping this so, so if people are listening to this and you're um you're, you're not into this and as nerdy as as al and i are because we we love this stuff um you know you talked about clovers and peas and stuff they have a a natural state where they're higher in nitrogen versus carbon and then likewise you're talking about a grass specific species and that's going to have a higher natural state of carbon um you know one thing it would be another thing that would probably start to confuse people and I'm not sure what the best way to navigate this is, but the timing or the the growth stage of a plant has a has a direct impact on the amount of carbon and nitrogen in a plant. New, for instance, um, you know, you you talked about your analogy with the clover. I would I would compare that to. Uh, uh, just rye or wheat in general. So um, I'm, I'm going to put my agronomy hat on for a, a second. So we did some projects the other year and did some testing of, of cover crops that were going to be killed off and nothing was going to happen to them other than recycle back into the soil and we we're going to plant a cash crop of corn. And we, we tinkered with the timing of when that cover crop was terminated and tried to, to, to gauge, okay, how much of the nitrogen that was in that plant is released and how much of it's actually going to become plant available throughout the growing season. And we, we, we did that by just taking samples of the plant matter at the same location throughout the entire year. And on, on to the topic of, of timing. When the, the, the rye or the wheat, that cereal crop, is green and actively growing, and it's in a vegetative stage, it's got a lower carbon to nitrogen ratio than when it does when it's in a reproductive stage. And that's why when you, when you, you know, har let's just say you harvest corn, um, 
rye grain or or wheat combine you get straw and that's high in carbon but that's the same plant that broke down really really fast when you killed it at a vegetative stage so what i'm getting at um when when a when a plant is terminated on a certain time it's going to release nitrogen maybe a little bit quicker than if it has a higher carbon to nitrogen ratio that's one thing i think is hard to understand when you're first starting out is timing is a big deal and i I know with your mixes and your approach to nutrient cycling timing is a big part of this too so i had to throw that little caveat in there with that no i think it's a great point absolutely great point yeah so um your spring mix, and you were talking about capitalizing and uh, the, the mixes you have. Keep, keep going with that. I, I probably threw you off pace a little bit, but we're talking about uh, nutrient cycling, not putting it on, and, and you, we left off with deer browse and deer pressure. So one of the things I struggle with is uh, on some of the places I have, is I have a lot of deer. And, and people think, you know, I've, I've, I've been in this situation where you go down this rabbit hole of trying to no-till your, your plants and have fall and, and summer mixes and then and and everything else and uh you think because you've got green plant matter in there you're just you're just building nutrients and and that's not the case so uh continue on with that um and and help us understand why the the browse pressure is so critical for assessing nutrient cycling well yeah i mean i i don't have any robust studies to to you know cite or anything like that but there's a couple things. Well, there's a couple things I can reference that I know to be true, right? I think it was Oklahoma State did a bunch of research on paddock grazing, which is just a fancy term for, for controlled cattle grazing. Okay. And what they found was that once a plant was browsed past a certain point, you know, and I don't remember all the specifics, but maybe it's, it's when 30% browsed, it reduces its photosynthetic capture and root exudation by x percent right so there's a direct correlation that the more it's browsed the more photosynthetic capture um, is reduced or root exudates are are reduced well what happens what what also happens is once it browsed to say 60 percent or 80 i think it was 80 percent the likelihood of that plant ever growing back is is very is very minimal right so and of course it, it varies slightly by plant species and stuff but this was a very controlled study done on cows, um, specifically measuring photosynthetic capture mm-hmm. or, or root exudation. So what's interesting about that is like with deer, you hear this term like, oh, they eat everything lip high. You know, that is like a common term guys will say, or girls will say, you know, about a deer plant. Oh, they ate everything right to the dirt. You know, it's all lip high, whatever term you want to say. And it's like, not only is that plot just because it's green, it's probably not photosynthesizing, even if it's still alive, probably not very well, which means your microbes aren't getting fed. Mm-hmm. You're not solubilizing nutrients and deer don't defecate like cows. Like they just don't. So like a lot of that is getting dropped elsewhere. You know, these, these, the deposits that you are getting are, are dropped elsewhere. Sure. Um, so it's literally walking off of the field, you know, um, so, so that's some things to keep in mind that like, I haven't seen, you know, the, the other thing to keep in mind is like, when you look at the six soil health principles, which we don't have to go through all those, but mm-hmm. one of the most common ones that guys hear is integrating livestock. If you have that option, which is amazing, right? It's, it's a very cool idea. One of the most 
overlooked aspects of that in regards to how deer can be used as livestock is the control. So like when you're integrating livestock on multiple pastures and you're having them mob graze, let's say one acre blocks, but those cattle are eating at soil A. And let's say soil A is inherently high in phosphorus and you have this diverse blend and it's just sucking, solubilizing phosphorus like a son of a gun. And now the cows have been moved because you're moving them, Mitch, right? You're, you're moving mm-hmm. them. And now they're on, on paddocks or, or, or whatnot, B, field B in the, on this one acre. And now those cows are eating and defecating and, and everything. Now this, this uh, field B is going to have a different nutrient profile and it's going to have a different pH and it's going to have a different CEC likely. And, and maybe it's high in iron and in other micros that the other field wasn't high in, right? Or zinc, right? There's a lot, I know, and you probably see it, the, mm-hmm. the phosphorus, the zinc ratios that are talked about a lot in corn. And now those cows are moved back to field A and they're defecating and urinating. So that's a very controlled way of moving nutrients. Whereas with deer, we just simply are unable to move to move nutrients that way. You know, we're, we're in a situation where they come on, and they eat and they leave. So in my opinion, I'm not a guy who's like, oh, you have to shoot every doe you see. But there are a lot of places, I always say in the Midwest, but I know in your area too, mm. you're high deer density areas. Um, and it's like, we either need to shoot more deer, plant more food, or in a lot of places, we got to do both. Yeah. And if we're not maximizing that, and, and listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I failed. This year, I planted more food than I ever have. I got there October 20th, and I'm like, how did I no-till drill things and work like on, on my the first field I checked, right? I'm like, did I have something wrong on the drill? Like I kind of panicked for a second. I walked over to the exclusion fence and it was like October, it was mid-October, I think. I can't remember. It was, I think it was the 20th, like I said, but I, I could be off there. Mitch, it was a 12-inch difference. The mm. rascas inside the cage were were beautiful. Outside, it was it looked like I had drilled it three days before yeah that's mind-boggling and that's that's really poor so uh, i mean in a in a sense of, of from a simple mindset you'd think man i accomplished my goal i created food they ate it and that was great and it, it is don't get me wrong our, our goal is to create attraction and, and create food but uh when you're looking at food soil from the long-term sustainability in that field um it's important to understand that the, the, the quote, like you, the quote unquote lip high that you just said is not good for the soil. There, there's a lot of disadvantage to that from a nutrient standpoint, from a root mass standpoint, from all kinds of standpoints. And uh, it is really, really tough to manage. Like I, I will be the first to admit that I don't have the answer for some places because I, I mean, for, I, I'll just speak from my own area. It's so segmented and parcelized and there's so much uh, emotion driven behind how you should handle deer and, and, and as far as how many you should shoot and some properties like it's just impossible to get enough food planted on and even though you maximize the the health of the landscape let's say you take a property that's uh and make it a diamond in the rough and everything surrounding you're going to create a void in the, the general area if it's a high populated area that's going to suck to the highly attractive plot and it's going to decimate your 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 resources anyway it's just it's a complex moving part thing that it's really really difficult to manage especially on your own especially if it's a small property but i mean you try to do everything you can 
Absolutely. But I think that's why, so like for us, we have, um, we try to add a lot of vining type, like, for example, in our spring, we have lab lab, you know, so we have these beans and these peas, which will kind of vine and create a little bit of a mess versus just straight lines of beans. So one, it makes the deer work a little bit harder, but then you also add things that necessarily aren't an ice cream crop. Like we have grain sorghum in our spring mix. Now, you and I know, based on our previous conversation, well, why is it? Well, because we're trying to capture nutrients you know, yeah. that are solubilized before it leaches out of your profile. But there's also this this idea of they're likely not going to carry all that. So, like, so grain sorghums, it's working. It's taking up nutrients. It's assimilating all these nutrients. It's solubilizing other nutrients that other you know plants are they're taking in. It's it's helping to connect fungal networks between all of the diverse mixes, like all this cool biological stuff is happening, which is another conversation for another day. But going back to the conversation we just had, what's definitely not happening, if it is, you really have a problem, is that grain sorghum, that whole stalk and stuff is not getting ate and walking off the mm-hmm. field. So you're, you're going to have nutrients that stay on that field. you know, And that's where even like rye grain, um, even if, you know, a lot of biomass is getting removed, a lot of biomass is getting removed, but at the end of the day, when it comes back next spring and it's, it's more lignin filled or, or higher carbon and nitrogen, as you were describing earlier, like the deer are not going to eat it. Right. So you are still though, with the rye green mining that soil in some sense throughout that whole time, it's getting eight. You know, if every time it grows an inch, they eat it an inch, it grows an inch and eat it an inch. Every time that plant needed to create that inch. Right. That's nitrogen, that's sulfur, that's amino acids, that's all of the things that are needed to create plant proteins are now fed into animal, which is then created into, you know, the room that creates creates animal protein. Right. I mean, that that's kind of the, the basis of life is, you know, proteins are the building blocks of right life, right? Or amino acids are building blocks of protein, which are the building blocks of life. So um that's why I'm I'm I love, you know, the diverse mixes. Obviously, vitalize it, we're, we're huge on it. We think we can definitely impact. I've seen on my own farm positive, you know, reduction in, in fertilizer and, and inputs. Absolutely, unequivocally can do it. But you have to keep in mind that every single soil and situation is slightly different, and you have to adjust based on your situation. Yeah. You know? L- let me give you a situation then, Al. So um, let's, you know, how do you handle that that standpoint from – uh, regenerative ag and using using plants in nutrient. What what if you have a soil that's extremely depleted? Like we're we're talking about stuff that's uh, a really really low pH, uh, phosphorus that's negligible and potassium that's negligible, and it almost like we're just in in bare just just deathly low nutrient soils. How do you approach that? Do you do you see a way to jumpstart that? You know, is is synthetic fertilizer an option in your mind, or are there things we can be doing from a plant side of things that can slow, that can advance the process? Like, what, what's how do you handle that? So I do think I, I do believe strongly in blending <clears throat> conventional agriculture ideologies and regenerative agriculture for exactly what you just stated. I will mention this. I do think that, and maybe I'm wrong, but from what I've seen, I think that we highly underestimate the ability for what plants can pull out of the soil. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that we, I mean, Dr. Rick Mulvaney has done some studies for anybody that's that's 
still listening to us, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> if you're you know, listening they, by this point, you are a diehard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Dr. Rick Mulvaney uh, out of um, is it, uh, Illinois, uh, um, Illinois University, mm-hmm. University of Illinois, um, has done some studies on, on potassium. You know, Dr. Christine Jones, um, which is a microbiologist out of uh, Australia, has done a lot on the phosphorus paradox. So, I mean, there's a lot of information out there that does this. You know, we did studies last year where I took a three by three cover crop sample from two different fields that are about a quarter mile apart. So like different soil types, one was an old logging deck. Um, and when I sent in that cover crop sample of our nitro boost, we had 45 average between the two samples, 45 pounds of nitrogen. We had about 25 pounds of phosphorus um, and we had 85 pounds of potassium and neither one of those soils had ever had an ounce of fertilizer. So that goes now nitrogen, we know we can pull out of the air. So that one's kind of like, okay, you know, it's, it's going to get assimilated because you're going to pull it out of the air. And, uh, you know, even if you didn't plant anything, you'd probably have natural, you know, legumes fall in into a field there and start fixing nitrogen. But the other two really, that was impressive. 85 pounds of potassium on a soil that has, you know, a base saturation of potassium between two and three and a CEC of, wow. you know, 11 to 12. So it makes you go, where did that come from? Was it microbial biomass that was decomposed? Like there's so many rabbit holes that again, we would we, we talk about that another day, but it's like, so, so I think that plants are, are underappreciated in the, in that sense in their ability to, to dominate, right? I also think that microbes are a little bit, um, I've, I've heard some people start talking about like, well, should we start counting the microbial biomass as a nutrient source, you know? Um, now, remembering what I just shared with you, that was only the above ground biomass. That didn't Not count any below. of the root structure. That didn't yeah. count nitrate levels. That didn't, I mean, I had that whole spring and summer, I had a heavy legume, uh, plant species grown, that didn't count any of the end fixation that was occurring at the root nodule. That was just above ground biomass. And then that doesn't count any of my organic matter mineralization and or the previous thatch that was still on the field from the fall planting before. So you start, you know, going like you were saying, adding all these numbers up, you're like, man, I don't really need to be fertilized. You're like, this, yeah. this is going to work really, really well. Now, going back to your question, if I have a guy or girl and they call us and they're like, man, I got a, a two CEC soil. Um, <clears throat> You know, and I'm, I'm looking at the soil test and their they're pounds of nitrate at six inches is one, you know, like yeah. whatever, whatever it is, it's highly degraded. Um, <clears throat> I personally don't have a problem with using synthetic fertilizers because to me, I think you have to jumpstart that, that, pro- that process. Now, I think there's a lot of, and I think it's getting better every week. Um, I think there's a lot of really good organic sources um you know we could have another discussion on the sustainability of some of those sources mm-hmm. right that there's that's kind of like the counter argument is yeah you're not using a petroleum source product but you're using something that's not sustainable anyways and and um you know it's it's still needs a ton of fossil fuels to, to source it so really right, is it that organic <laughs> you know there's that yeah. whole discussion but i do think that's worth worth talking about too you know i think what I what I'm interested in, in some of those low CEC soils, um, 
because I think those are probably the toughest. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong, but to me, you know, when you get a guy with a one or two, I mean, it's basically beach sand, you know, and it's like, even those for deer food plotters, it's like, how much time do you got? Because if you can foliar your feed them, feed the plants, if you have the time to spray every two weeks, like you could probably really get that soil rocking. I also think looking at mycorrhizal um, inoculants, uh, you know, on the seed is a really good idea. Trying to jumpstart that biology in the soil when you're when you're getting those things started. So not only are you creating above ground pretty biomass that looks good, but also um, trying to get that that fungal network started, right? Mm-hmm. And a little bit of isolation I think could, could go a long way um, there. And then obviously you got on those soils. I mean, tillage just is not really an option. If you're going to do it, do it once, get it done, and sell the tiller. Because after that, like, you've got to just keep roots in the ground and keep that system going. And if you have to foliar feed or synthetic fertilizer to get that thing going, do it, you know. Um, but I think the biggest thing there is just come up with a plan is how you're, how are you going to approach this, Right. I, I love that, Al. I think you hit the nail on the head. So when I take this back into production agriculture, um, you know, that we have a pretty good reliance on chemical fertilizers, uh, well, synthetic fertilizers, chemical use is, is pretty high in the fields. Yeah, we might see some more expansion in cover crops. You know, our neck of the woods in southeast Pennsylvania is probably one of the highest areas in the country for use of cover crops after conventional <laughs> corn and, and soybeans, and it's fantastic. Um the, the thing people have to understand when you're thinking about this from an agronomic perspective, we demand a lot out of our soils from yield because yield is a, is a very important contribution to profitability. And you're, you're creating um, a double-edged sword. You, you want to be profitable, you want to drive yield, and you want to do so in a lot of agronomic ways. But in order to maximize... Uh, try to maximize a cover crop, that might be very difficult to do due to the the length of your growing season. Now, I have a grower that I've worked with a little bit over the years, and he's extremely... he, he's doing so many wonderful, wonderful things on his operation as far as regenerative ag. He's doing things like putting corn on wide rows and putting cover crops in throughout the growing season. And then he's incorporating cattle on to graze that to help with the nutrient cycling while still getting a cash crop off and, and tinkering with things like that. And what he, you know, one thing I've, I've said with him, we've said together, you can put anything into, into a depleted system and you can see a response. That's, a, that's an important statement. But the other thing he said, it was on to what you said about jump starting. He said, I don't think it's right that we have to have this mindset that there's one way or the highway to do this. Blending things together in order to make it work is important. So he said, so if I'm if I'm farming in a situation that uh, I don't want to till, but I've got a I've got a new farm I picked up. It's rugged. It's bumpy. It's all kinds of things, and the pH is a 4.9. He goes. It's important that I address the pH with lime, he said, and I might till it that first year to smooth it out for the longevity of having a good field to work in, then building from there. And the same thing with fertilizer. If, if he can reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer and just rely solely on animal manure that he's producing on his farm or bringing onto the farm and supplying an, or, a quote-unquote organic form of fertilizer to his crop and reducing that synthetic 
that's fantastic. But if it's so depleted that he has to substitute it, that's okay. It's jump-starting the system. It's working. So there's all I'm getting at with this, this tangent, Rand, is there's more than one way to skin a cat. Translate this into food plots. Um, we've got a lot more flexibility in what we have because we're not trying to pull a cash crop and make money off of this. So we, we can we can allow plants to do some different things without intensive, intensive harvest is, is kind of what I was getting at. So that's Absolutely. that's my little tangent. But I think that's a very good point because I sometimes um, I've had to kind of I've gotten very uncomfortable on podcasts before where I'm having, you know, we're talking regenerative and we're basically talking double cover cropping. Right. You know, yeah. And, seed system is, is again i mean i wouldn't i'm passionate about it you know i i love it but at the same time you know i wouldn't i always say i wouldn't plant anything else on my farm right like that that's what i'm 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 planting or i wouldn't sell it if i wouldn't plant it on my farm is what i meant to say mm-hmm. you know like and that's what i plant in all my fields it gets the one two system and it's worked very well and i'm expanding even more fields this this coming year um based on some things that have changed uh locally there and, and giving me an opportunity to plant a little bit more Good deal. But I hate this idea with regenerative agriculture that creates this polarization, be it in the food plot world, be it in the agricultural world. I've learned more from 60, 65 year old farmers in southeastern Ohio who've run corn on corn for 60 years and 30 CEC soils, you know, still moldboard plow it next to a creek than I've learned from any book. Mm hmm. And could they do things a little bit more? I'm sure. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, having those real world conversations and you want to talk the farmer piece, like, and understanding they're paying their bills, like understanding there's an inherent risk in cover cropping or no tilling versus what you've always done. Like there's all of these other things to consider. So I always tell people like, even in the food plot world, if you're taking a step towards soil conservation, because I kind of hate like the soil health term or even building soil. I used to have a, a uh, I used to say build better soil was kind of like my hashtag, or whatever. Yeah. but I, I almost got away from saying that because I got so tired of it. And I always say now it's like any step towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction. Because like if you're, if you're typically remote board plowing and now you're doing, you know, vertical tillage on the corn, and, and running a cover crop or, or whatever, or you, you used to just till it or disc everything under. Now you got a tiller and you're going to only do two inches. Like, is it perfect? Probably not. But we might turn around in, in 10 years and find out that, you know, we should have been planting things differently, right? Like, yeah. Who knows? So it's like, I just think that we, in order to have good progress, we need to work together and i really believe in what you mentioned that farmer said is one blending ideas you know two not arguing with with each other and then as far as the food plot piece goes and you know this a hell of a lot better than i do mitch but it's like this idea behind comparing um food plotting to farming i see it all the time right you know uh no farmer wants to pay more than they have to for fertilizer. Like let's let's keep that really really clear. And they're also using precision agriculture. Mm. You know, so like you know, explain a little bit about what that is. But like for for me, right, for my basic understanding is like 
you're being as precise, right? Mm -hmm. Precision, precise as possible with seed depth, down pressure rigging, um, fertilizer in furrow, biologicals potentially in furrow on the seed. Everything is, a, you know, closing, closing wheels, perfect. You don't have any sidewall compaction. Like it is adjusting as you go through the fields, right? Like based on the different calculation and layering yield data with all that, like that's quite a bit different than filling a bag of triple 13 and just <laughs> wringing it out there with exactly. a you know, bag spreader. And, and I tell people that because when you hear things like nitrogen volatization, right? Well, for food plotters, that might be a lot bigger of a deal. If you're just going out there, not incorporating the, the fertilizer, you don't have a growing root there that needs nitrogen. You don't even have a plant yet. And you're like, I've seen guys say, oh, I'm putting my fertilizer down. They're not planting for three weeks. Yep. I'm like, what do you do? You know, phosphorus, maybe potassium might be okay, depending on the soil type, right? But like your nitrogen, it's in the Ohio River. Like, you know, exactly. It's, so, Explain a little bit. To, I, I, look, I'm like interviewing you now, but I think it would be helpful just to, to tell a little bit about like, how do you, if you were talking to somebody who never heard of precision agriculture, like how, how do you explain it, define it? That's a loaded question and to keep it condensed, it can be difficult, but I'm going to do my best. So let's just take a field. Let's just say it's a 20 acre field, which that's, that's a, that's a, like a small chunk in your world over there in Ohio, but that's a big field here. So let's just take a 20 acre field. I know darn well that be based on the terrain and topography and the soil types of our soil, there's a lot of variation in that soil. And one area might be lower and uh, a, a higher CEC and one might be, uh, you know, a lower CEC and stonier. There, there's all kinds of shifting paradigms. So I'll do things like soil test different regions of that field and map it out in a GPS. And maybe I do that based on a, a, a whole bunch of yield data that's been taken. You know, a combine goes through the field, it's collecting data of how much crop is being removed in those sections of the field. You do that for a long period of time, numerous years, you start to develop trends in where's a high productive area and where's a low productive area. So then from there, we'll say, okay, well, why is why is that happening? So then maybe you test it for nutrients um, and, and, and things like that. Or maybe you're just realizing that the soil is that different and we need to put more seeds in the good areas and less seeds in the bad areas. So what, what I can do then is develop a prescription, precision ag, and you can place uh, nutrients at corrected rates in those like at, at a fine-tuned rate rather than just saying hey this whole 20 acre field needs 200 pounds per acre of potash maybe at one end of the field it's getting 300 pounds per acre of potash which is uh, k2o potassium and maybe at another end it needs 75 pounds maybe it needs none maybe we've got sufficient levels so i guess in a in a short end nutshell from the fertility end of things that would be how i would describe it so when you get into that level of detail um we're taking we're, we're taking concepts from agriculture but how much of that do you relate to in a food plot a, a little bit but it, there's a lot of differences there right and i think that's where the reason i wanted to ask you that is First off, it's, it's fascinating. Oh, it and is. Also, I think that I see a lot of people get um, paralysis by analysis um, when it comes to food plotting, right? Oh, I've yeah. seen people say, oh, don't plant a mix because all the seeds need different depths. Don't You can't run mixes through drills because um, the, the seeds need different depths, right? Yeah. Um, what are some other things, right? Well, 
uh, some species are going to outcompete. You got to get your seeding rates appropriate your, and stuff like that. Which I, I want to say, I'll let you finish your comment, but that's kind of one of the things I want to wrap up with. But we'll circle back to that. So, so like I always love to learn from from those who know a lot more than me. You know, so I I remember, gosh, a while ago, you know, I started talking to farmers and and all over. It's called Farmer in Iowa. He's big regen ag guy, doing ton of crop, cover cropping and. Um, I'm like, how are you getting your, your mixes down? You know, because they're beautiful, right? He's doing 60-inch corn and stuff. How are you doing it? Oh, well, we uh, we fly it on. I'm like, you just fly it on. Yeah, we no-till our corn at 60 inches and come in a few months later, we just fly out our radish and rye and everything, and, and it just falls and we pray for rain. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, well, it looks great. Yeah, it works out real. You know, other times I would just we just fill up the drill and go. You know, yep. just get close to calibrated. So I think that what happens sometimes is guys get so focused on this perfect idea. And one of the things that I think is funny is like, I'm for, I have a no-till drill. You know, I, I'm fortunate I have uh, a nicer tractor and everything. And it's like, but even then, it's not precision agriculture. Like there's contour to the ground. There's variation in soil type. But even with a no-till drill, and if you think you have your depth set perfectly, just through driving, like you're going to have variation. And guess what? If you were running a monoculture or a diverse plant, things are going to grow. So it's like, if you get the seed, I always tell people, what do you recommend for your mixes? I go, if you're planting green, quarter inch to a half inch into the soil. Yep. That's it. And you're like, whoa, really? I mean, I thought soybeans had to be, you know, an inch and a half deep and covered up. A I've dropped soybeans out that rolled off the gravel drive and in damn soybean plant was growing. Yep. These little balls of energy want to grow. If you give them water, you know, and especially in a decently high fertility um, area. So I just tell people like, whether you have a no-till drill, um, Mitch, for years, I'd walk through chest high rye and, you know, brassicas and crimson clover and hairy vetch for my fall blend. And I'd broadcast into it and I'd come back with just a bush hog and mow it off and leave. Yep. And the field. Looked, I still do that in some cases. Yeah, the field looked awesome. Yep. You know, so it's like, but but wait, there wasn't this perfect seed depth. There wasn't this, there wasn't that. It's like, it doesn't have to be. You know, it doesn't have to be. It just, you might, now one thing you will say, you might have to adjust seeding rates. You might have to go a little sure. higher or a little lower. Um, you know, on our spring mix, a lot of legumes. They can handle browse, you know, legumes can handle pretty tight growing conditions versus say like a brassica, you know? Um, so on that case, I tell people, you have a high deer density, lower food, you might want to up the seeding rate, you know, the plants per square foot, if you will. Right. And for the guy who maybe he's planting 10 acres, well, that guy, and you know, he doesn't have an overly high deer density. He probably can keep it at 45 pounds to the acre. You know, like those type of minor adjustments, no, 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 nobody's going to be able to tell you except you. Like you just kind of got to get out and know your farm. Like I can give guidance, yeah, but I can't really tell you unless I'm driving the tractor for you and, and looking at trail camera data and doing the browse surveys and looking at exclusion fences. Like I'm not going to be able to tell you, hey, we need to up this seeding rate by X. I just say that on the fall mixes, you got to be really, really careful. Guys love to just sling it out there. If you want brassica and bulb production and good top production, um, 
you don't want to overcrowd those particular species. So let, let's let's kind of wrap up with that because I think that's a great point. And if you're still with us, this is probably the part we're going to get into more of the hunting strategy, fall food plot stuff that everybody loves and craves. But out uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and it's kind of annoying, is there, there's these mindsets of my way or the highway in the fall food plot setups. And there's a lot of competition that says we have to put certain mixes out a certain way or we're not going to have season-long attraction. Uh, if we don't do it this way, we're not going to have season-long attraction. And if you try to blend certain species together, um, it won't work that, that it's a bad mix. Like I'll give you a good example. I've, I've had people tell me that uh, – mixing a cereal grain with a brassica like a like a like a radish that that's a bad mix if you ever see that mix it's a bad mix and don't buy it which is um not completely false it's relative to seeding rate it, it's very important in how you manage the seeding rate um, it can be done. Uh, um, I'm going to use this example. So for, for dairy farmers in our area, you know, it's very popular to just put rye out. So for, to put a, a lot of rye out, maybe 150 pounds per acre and through a drill with rye, that's a thick, thick crop. Um, if you're going to put in two pounds of radish per acre with that, they're not going to be in the best situation to have maximum above ground and tuber growth. That doesn't mean for a food plot that they can't be mixed if you're doing things appropriately. And and this is this is kind of my opinion, and, and you can you can tell me if you disagree. I, I'd really like you to just say um, or, or, or go down the avenue of, of why do you choose the plants in your mix for the fall um, not necessarily from a nutrient cycling standpoint, but from a uh, a deer hunting attraction. Uh, at, talk about the beginning of the season, the end of the season, that hunting end of the spectrum that everybody, you know, all the all the big wig hunters want to talk about. Yeah, so I kind of forget about the hunting aspects because I'm so passionate about the soil. But I mean, I love, <laughs> you know, I, love, I do, I do obviously love to hunt, and um, you know. For our blends, in specifically the fall blend, we are a huge believer in diversity. I have 16 different species in my fall blend. Um, from a hunting perspective, what is most most uh, palatable early is uh, you know a good bit of the Austrian winter peas, mm -hmm. the oats, the grains, um, and then of course the brassicas do tend to come on a little bit a little bit later. Um, I have seen where in people using our program um you know we've only been in business now for just just celebrating a year but we've been using the mixes for for years before that you know and um <clears throat> before we ever played on starting a business and what i've seen is as nutrients increase the palatability and browsability on food mm -hmm. uh or food plot excuse me increases significantly like i i, I if i planted just brassicas, I'd be out of food back over 12. Yep. So I took a picture the other night, um, and it was February 22nd or 21st or 20th. I can't remember. Um, you know, I had a bunch of deer feeding in the field. And you go, well, how could that be? Well, you got your grains that are still alive other than the oats. The oats will die off, but that's mm -hmm. why it's a very small percentage in, in our mix is – um, I don't see a huge draw difference between winter rye, winter wheat, triticale, um, and oats. So I have all 
of those in, in our mix for different root structures, uh, you know, uh, different uh, different root structures, excuse me, different growth after after spring green up, um, et cetera. But I also have clovers, you know, uh, crimson clover, uh, for example, uh, fixation balanza, bursine. Um, that's all in our fall mix. I also have hairy veg. So I have all of these things mixed, but the key, like you mentioned, is, is the balance. So, I mean, we had pictures of guys who had brassica bulbs. I mean, huge. Just you're almost like, gosh, darn, that, it's hard to believe of how big some of those were, you know, purple tops. And we use a lot of uh, forage brassica varieties too. They don't necessarily create a, a big ball mm-hmm. uh, are made for browsability. They were, most of them were formulated for the cattle industry, like Winfred, forage brassicas, yeah. collards, apen turnips, et cetera. And you know, we used a bunch of different things like that. Um, and we're, we're changing. So, so why is that important, right? Well, because you're never cleaning, you're never cleaning the plate. You're never cleaning the plate. They can browse and browse and browse it to, like I said, lip high earlier, right? That that quarter inch off the ground. But I bet you anything that as soon as you get a warm day and some sunshine, those are going to try to grow. And they might grow a quarter inch and the deer might come back and nip it. But you never wipe the plate clean. And that is so important, not only from a deer health perspective, Right, because you're just constantly giving them something to eat, whereas it would just be a, a barren desert, you know, had it been a monoculture of something. But also, from obviously, as we mentioned earlier, you know, a soil health perspective, trying to keep that living root in the soil at all times. So my biggest thing for that is you're not going to change everybody's mind. We have pictures. I've seen stuff that you've made, you know, made your own mixer or done whatever you, you know, however you put your stuff together, and it's like. Guys are using diversity with a ton of success, a ton of success, and they're growing things together, and the deer love it. Um, and the biggest thing on that is if you think it shines during hunting season, wait till spring with these diverse blends. Because if you think it's good during deer season, which it is, I mean, it's amazing. Wait till spring, especially if you're a turkey hunter, mm-hmm. when you have hairy vetch with seeds on it and crimson clover, and the bees are in there, and the rye grain, and the triticale, and the winter wheat are starting to go to seed head, and they're at different heights, and the turkeys are coming in, nipping at the seed heads, and the bugs and everything are in there, and you're literally creating like a micro ecosystem within these fields where there's just good predators being bugs and everything coming in there. Oh, and then by the way, yeah, the deer are just going to continue to feed. You can feed deer with a good fall food plot mix from fall to fall. And that's obviously, Mitch, what I recommend when I get a guy, he goes, hey, man, I got a, I got a quarter acre, you know, and a high deer. What do you recommend? I'm like, here's what I tell you. Get a soil sample, plant our fall mix, and leave that fall mix until the next fall, terminate it, and plant it again. I like that. Because there's not a huge, you're not going to get sunflowers to grow in a quarter acre. You know, like, you just have to be realistic for the grower's goals, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like what I, I would recommend for, for somebody um doing that and it's amazing the above ground biomass and deer that and and other animals too that will utilize that type of of field al i I couldn't agree more and you know we've been rolling on this for a while and i want to be conscious of your time the other thing i want to be be mindful of is the fact that people who are listening to this if you're new to food plots and you're listening to this thank you for listening this far because al and i like to talk about this stuff it's passionate it's confusing it's it's a little bit um 
it's it's a little bit overwhelming if you're listening to this from a, from an outside looking in. If you're somebody who's um, geeking out and trying to learn stuff about this all the time and you're into this stuff, um, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping it structured and organized. But if you're looking at it from, from the outside looking in without a lot of experience, it probably just sounded like a mess mumbo-jumbo on the, on the world of soil health. But, Al, I, I love... Um, I love the stuff you talked about. I love the way you explained nutrient cycling. I love the way that you translated that into ways that a deer hunter and somebody who just wants to go out and make good food plots and have a good hunting season can relate to it. That's what's most important because at the end of the day, that's what most of us are trying to do. And I really like the way you uh, you approach this. So um, I, I want you to close this out with uh, just kind of – where can people find more information about you, about Vitalize Seed, or anything else you've got going on with within that uh, within that entity? Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, this is a lot of fun, and um, I mean, there's so many things to talk about, right? I mean, we next time we got to talk about you know nutrient uptake and, and protein synthesis in the plant and how that can is more easily digestible. I mean, that, there's so many things in how you can achieve that with really healthy soils, right? Mm. That's a whole nother discussion, but um, I, before I, I mention anything else about the seed company is I like people to realize like there are so many great resources today at our fingertips to learn. And I'm self-taught on all of this. Like I didn't um, go to school for agronomy. Like if you want to learn about this stuff, you know, Dr. William Albrecht, Ray Archuleta on YouTube, Ag PhD radio, contact your local agronomist, contact a, a local farmer. Hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing? How are you pulling soil samples? You know, um, contact the, the labs. You know, I, I, we work with Ward Labs at Vitalize uh, mm-hmm. Seed. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure they're hoping I get out of the business because, I mean, I'm asking them questions constantly. They're, they're soil scientists or PhDs. I mean, they're brilliant people. And, nobody's just going to wake up one day and go, yep, I understand all this. Like it just, it doesn't work that way. So we have to keep asking why and and by working together and asking those questions and reading various types of research from various different areas is how we continue to progress our own knowledge. And then we can share that with others for myself with the little bit that I've gathered, you know, over the last 10, 15 years of, of being really passionate about this, I try to give, um, you know, try to get that back with our, our seed company, you know, vitalize seed, trying to make it simple with the one, two system. Um, you know, that's really how, how I try to give back on that website is I like write a lot of blogs to try to explain some of this stuff and simplify it. Um, VitalizeSeed.com. I think it's under the blog slash journal section. Um, you know, so that's really the best way. Habitat chat uh, is my buddy's podcast, uh, Habitat podcast. Um, Habitat Shots, a Facebook group. We do a little bit there. Um, Vitalized Seed is another, has its own page on Facebook um, and also on Instagram. I'm trying to think. That's really it, you know. Um, that's where I spend most of my time. Um, and, you know, I'm just happy to answer questions anytime. Every email that comes through on the website, I'm answering it. Um, you know, so if you have questions, whether you use our mixes or not, I'm happy to talk with you. Happy to try to give you my advice on a soil sample or whatnot. Absolutely, and please do reach out because Al's a, a wealth of knowledge, and as, as you can tell, extremely passionate. So, Al, thanks for coming on the show. I, I look forward to having you again and talking about more things food plot driven. I, it's, I love it. It's, it's just a passion of mine, and I love connecting it to deer hunting because let's face it, we all love shooting deer. 
Absolutely, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. It's really my pleasure.